Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. And one day he was griping and he said something to me. He said, uh, I don't know how you could believe in God. And I said, okay. And he said, um, I don't know how you believe in a God who would ask Abraham to kill his own son. He said, you believe in a God that would ask a man to suffer like that? And uh, I was young in my faith, and I knew, I knew the story well enough, and I said, well, uh, I, God doesn't ask Abraham to go through with it. Like, God, God provides. Like, that's the, that's the point of the story, is that, that, that God's provision for Abraham in that moment. And, uh, and I said, I just, I just don't think you understand the story. And he said, I don't think you understand the story. And uh, true. Um, but this question keeps rolling throughout throughout Scripture and throughout history, really, this question of suffering and God and how a perfectly omnibenevolent God, a perfectly good God, could allow suffering. And what was God doing with Abraham? And what was that story about? I love rabbinic tradition says that when um, Abraham brought Isaac, you know, Isaac carried the wood up Mount Moriah, brought Isaac to this moment of sacrifice. And when Abraham drew back the sword and, you know, there was provision, there was a a goat, by its horns. You remember the story. Um, I love rabbinical teaching says the shofar, the blowing of the shofar is a declaration of that, 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 that provision in the bush that, that God would provide the sacrifice. That we don't bring forth elves that, bring, that, 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 that can possibly ever atone for our sins, but that God would be the one who would provide the sacrifice to atone for our sins. And that, that Some rabbis would say every time a, a Jewish man blew that shofar to declare whatever celebration or war, they were, decla- they, were, they were reminding the nation of the moment that God provided that sacrifice for, for Abraham on Mount Moriah. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham, God, Abraham did not believe that God was some cruel, angry man. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham believed that even if God did take Isaac from him, he would raise him from the dead. Abraham's understanding of God was not that he was cruel and harsh. And furthermore, the entire narrative is a foreshadowing of what God would do, not what he would ask Abraham to do. God would be the one who would watch his son walk up Mount Moriah with a cross on his back, and God would be the one to watch his son shed blood for other sins. This story was about what God would do, not what Abraham would do. Number one, God is not the author of suffering. We are. And I don't have time to hash out the like age-old problem of evil or problem of suffering, sometimes called the problem of pain. It's, I probably don't have the intellect or the years to wrestle through it, but I can tell you plainly from the presentation that, the, that, that sin comes from us and suffering comes from sin. And so God is not the author of suffering. We are the authors of suffering. And number two... Um, if we want God to end suffering, we're asking God to end us. Okay, so, so, so God, Peter tells us that God is not slow as some would count slowness in regards to the second coming, but He's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish. So God did not author suffering. He didn't offer, author pain, but He walks throughout a history that, that's woven with suffering, patiently waiting for us to reach repentance. To ask God to end suffering, ask God to bring justice. But God's patiently 
anything. And what, what I'm trying to get to is, is number three, is that, that God didn't author suffering, but He has endured it for thousands of years because of us. In, in Romans chapter 8, let me read you our text this morning, and I hope I can do this thing justice. Um, but Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how, he, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave, up, gave Him up for us all. This is a direct, to every commentator I read this week, this is a direct um, quotation. It's, 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 it's intentionally trying to remind you of the moment in Genesis chapter 22 where God applauds Abraham for not sparing even His own Son. And so now Paul's saying is that this story of Abraham not sparing His own Son, when you read narrative, right? And you put yourself in Abraham's shoes and you start to think of the pain that it would cause you to bring your own son to a place of sacrifice. And you start to think that this Isaac was something special to Abraham, right? Like his, like his beloved. This wasn't a run. I mean, Abraham's not flowing with kids. This, is, this isn't a normal child. This was a promised child. It was something different. And so Paul says that as you read that narrative and as you hear the pain and the suffering and the agony in Abraham's heart as he works towards sacrificing his own son, Paul's saying, no, that's actually about God. That's actually about the pain, the loss that he felt as Jesus went to the cross. And so the point here is, is that last time I spoke to you, we talked about the sacrifice, that, that the, the thing that Jesus did as a member of the Trinity when He submitted Himself to the will of God to the point of death, Philippians chapter 2. Even to death He submitted Himself for your redemption. The plan from the for redemption endured suffering for the joy that was set before Him. No one enjoys suffering, not even Jesus, but He endured it for your well-being. But then Paul takes it back a step and he says, don't forget that God gave up His only Son. That God who did not author suffering engaged it. From, the, from eternity past, He had decided that the, the crown of heaven, the joy of His heart, Jesus, no one like Him, that He was willing even to let go of Jesus for your benefit. That God didn't start this, but He's walked through it for 2,000 years, 6,000 years, 8,000 years, however long you want to put history back. And so we're not able to go to God as if God knows nothing of suffering. We're not able to go to, to the Father as if He knows nothing of pain. Certainly His nature is different from us. I'm not saying that He has emotional, chemical responses. I'm not saying that He has mood swings. I'm not saying that He can feel physical pain. He's a spirit. But I am saying that He experienced loss. For your sake. And so Paul's point here is this. He says that um, in verse 31 again, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How, listen to this, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If He has put all of his chips on the table and shoved them across in Christ Jesus. How will he not see us through? Every good, there, there's no good investor who takes all of their capital, 
sit in one project and then walks away. You watch that thing. You see it through. What Paul is saying is that God has already put, invested all of His capital into this work. God has put his bet, all of His chips on the table and He's shoved them across towards you. Now Paul's saying, live as if God actually loves you. Live with confidence. As if God wants to see this thing through. You don't live in fear. You don't live in shame. You don't live back from demonic powers or a man, but you live as if you are victorious in Christ Jesus. For heaven's sake, He gave you His only begotten Son. So God knows something of loss. I know that's an interesting thought, and I could, I could back it with tons of scholarship. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer just got wild on this in the 50s. Karl Barth, the most prominent theologian of the 20th century, this was a, a profound place of his theology. The leading, one of the leading New, New Testament um, scholars today, D.A. Carson, on this over and over, that God knows laws. That, 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 that we, we're not deists. We don't believe that God just created this big watch in the air and spun the thing up and walked away. But we believe that God created us, watched us fall, and then walked with us. We, this, just for a moment, um, there's a statement that, that goes around Pentecostal circles, um, and it's this, that God is always in a good mood. Um, and, and Bill Johnson was probably the first one to, to make that statement, at least that I know of. And he's, and he's come, and he's, Qualified the statement many times, saying that he's he's not saying that God is satisfied with sin. He's not saying that God doesn't suffer or feel pain. What what Bill Johnson's trying to say is that God is always loves his children. There's not a moment where he rejects his children, and that's a perfectly sound statement. But that statement out of makes it, it, it removes God from any sense of feeling. Charles Hodges, who was a Princeton. Um, president uh, in, in the late 1800s, in his systematic theology, he said that in order to love, one must feel. It's a logical requirement of love that one has. For if God is love, God has some kind of feeling. No, it's not like our feeling, but, but God can feel. God can love. God can be pleased. God can smile, if you will. God, same sense, God doesn't watch a young girl ex- experience rape, and God, God's not in a good mood in that moment. He, he feels lost. He feels grievance. He's frustrated. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you together. Do you remember when Lazarus died and Jesus stood at the, he stood at the tomb and just wept? Our God is not this outer space thing that lives beyond us, who lives in perfect peace, and it's not Buddha. It's not this, he's not this person that just lives perfectly happy and we're all trying to ascend to him. But our God is one who said, you've fallen and you've messed up. And rather than obliterating us as, as he probably should have, he actually engages in our brokenness and in our suffering and he feels pain. So God, number one, God's not moody. So that statement's a little goofy. God doesn't have mood swings. Um, but God is always pleased with His children, absolutely. But He also feels loss. And that's why the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is, is adamant about, about rebuking darkness from the earth because darkness frustrates God, especially when light is so stinking available. When He's given us His own Son, 
The Gospel's on our lips. We have a message of freedom, of liberation. There is no reason for anyone to walk in deception or bondage. Light is available. God is frustrated when people live in darkness. So what I'm trying to say is that that God endured some form of incredible loss to show His love towards you. He he watched the, the idea the phrasing that He did not spare His own Son. It may refer to the moment in which Jesus says in Gethsemane, Father, if You're willing, take this cup from Me. And God does it. And He cries out on the cross, Father, Father, why have You forsaken Me? And God doesn't intervene. Could He have intervened? Absolutely. There is no demonic power that could ever come close to it. God has no equal. But He doesn't. Why? Because he, he, he loves us. And he was, he was putting all of his cards on the table. He was, he was saying, I'm going to see you through to redemption. I'm going to enter into loss. I'll engage in suffering too. I'll buy you back. You don't have to earn your own salvation. I'll, I'll pay for this one. This one's on me. And he endures loss for our sake. And then Paul essentially in this text says this. He says, now live like God loves you. He's giving you it. What more could he give you? So the text, one more time. What then shall we say to these things? He's, he's coming off of what's called the golden chain of redemption, that those whom He foreknew, He justified, and who He justified, He glorified. That, that statement of God from eternity past, He intended to redeem a specific people for Himself, and He would see that thing through. So what should we say? And He says this, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he says, this is how we know that God is for us. He didn't spare even His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we discussed in prior weeks the nature of Jesus and being willing to submit Himself to extreme punishment for the sake of our glory. And today I want to discuss the Father's willingness, which is peculiar. It's, it's, a, it's a strange thing to... Do you guys... Do you remember... I'm, some of you may... Do you remember like... I don't, I don't know if this even happened. But, but the, the first time... I don't know anything about medical history. I don't know if vaccinations were forever. But the first time I watched my, my baby, like my baby get shot, like 10 shots in one moment, and she's like crying. Like I would do anything to take those shots for her, and I hate shots. You know what I'm saying? They're just strange suffering to watch someone that you love with all of your being suffer and not intervene. 
That's a strange hurt that God endured for us. And I'm suggesting that that trait of parental love, that thing within us, that the moment they put a baby in our arms, we feel extreme affection well up within us, that that this is actually a reflection of God's image. And, And no, it's not a perfect correlation, but that's something like what God feels for the Son. That's something like the perfect unity of affection that God that, that exists between the Father and the Son. I'm also suggesting that that's why we need to do everything we can to continue to fight for the Father and the Mother to be present in the home because that's a reflection of God-likeness. What, what in the world did Malachi mean when he said that there would be a revival in the last day when the hearts of the fathers turned back to the sons? In our day, we're throwing away the unborn and calling it woman's rights. And, and, and the scriptural principle is that there's something in you that's given by God to like be the selflessly love that child. And it's God-like. So I just want to give you three points. I'm allowed to do three-point sermons. I ain't a Baptist, but I'll do three points. I just want to give you three points so I'm going to get out of your hair. Number one, we exist in the provision of God. Hear the text again. If He did not spare His own Son, how much more would He give us all things? If He's given us His most precious commodity, will He not take care of our basic needs? We exist within the provision of God. It's very hard to talk about provision, spiritual and natural provision in our day without engaging this idea of the prosperity gospel or the the thing that um, is being taught today that the gospel is about us having more material goods. And I want to say to you today that there is nothing wrong with stewarding your money well. It's a biblical thing to work Hard. It's a biblical principle. The, the Proverbs say that the righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. There's nothing anti-biblical about being blessed, stewarding your money well, but it's absolutely a biblical thing to not... It's absolutely a biblical thing to live sacrificially. And so sometimes when you're saving for something because you want a new TV and there's nothing wrong with that, and, and, and someone comes along with a need, it's sacrificial to grab some of that money and throw it down. And every time we do that, we're saying, you're not my God. I don't belong to you. There's a biblical idea that there is this demonic thing that wants to bind you towards a lust for materialism and money. And so it's hard to talk about the provision of God because automatically our minds go to tele-evangelists saying, if you want a BMW, just write it on your refrigerator and keep saying it. I'm saying that's not the provision of God. This is what uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry about what you're going to wear and don't worry about what you're going to eat. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else will be added to you. I don't need any preacher to keep telling me if I'll do the right things, I'll have the right clothes. I need you to keep telling me to seek first God. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Will He provide for us? Yes. Absolutely. He, he is our provider. Daily bread. We can rest in that. We don't have to fear what, what's going to come tomorrow financially. We can rest in the fact that God is our provider. But the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it just fuels your lust for money. 
But furthermore, provision is about much more than that. It's not just about money. It's about much, much more than that. Most days, I don't need an extra $200 in my bank account. I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I need the gifts of the Spirit at work in my life. I've got people coming to me with sickness and, and they need prayer. And I need, I need the Holy Ghost to work. That's the provision that I need even more than financial provision. Paul also says in this text that he says, remember that no one can condemn because Christ Jesus is the one who justifies. This provision is also about atonement. It's about knowing that when I slip up and I will and I say the wrong thing and I will, that I don't, I don't, I don't have to crawl up any mountain on my hands and knees and try to bleed out my own penance, but that, the, that there's already provision for my failures. It's in the cross of Jesus. This provision is also about atonement. It's about knowing that, that, that when you mess up, God is ready to, to forgive and to grab you and pull you right back. And He's a loving Father who's not looking to kick you down. He's already paid, paid the price. Also, it says that Jesus provides a perfect intercession on your behalf. That's a provision that we stink and need. The intercession of Christ. And it says, who can condemn that you remember that the enemy is called the accuser. And you kind of get this a, a picture that the accuser comes to condemn us and Jesus steps in and says, nope, and He offers a perfect intercession. How do we know that, God, that Christ will continue in His intercession? Because God gave us His only Son. How do we know that He's going to take care of us tomorrow? Because He already gave us His only Son. How do we know that the Holy Ghost isn't just going to get up and leave outside of my ribcage? He's already given us His only Son. And His promise is that out of our belly will flow rivers of living water. For heaven's sake, that's the provision that I need. The psalmist said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in that is the idea that God will provide all my needs. In that is also the idea, if I don't have it, I don't need it. Leave that one for you. (laughs) But there is very much, and and to balance that, it's just all day long, there's much the biblical idea that you have not because you ask not. And if you do ask, you ask for your own selfish ambition. And so even statement there there is there there the, the paternal heart of God is saying if you need just come ask if you have kingdom desires to see cities flipped over for the glory of God come knock on the door in that statement is I'm not going to just fulfill all of your selfish wants but when your desires align with the kingdom I'm ready to bring provision number two Paul says that we exist within the protection of God. No, remember, hear, hear him say, we are considered like, sleech, like, like sheep to be slaughtered all day long. He's saying that we are persecuted by man. Then he's saying that there is a power that attempts to separate us from God. And, and Paul says, none of those things will be able to separate you from God. We exist within a divine protection of I want to read to you this morning the last letter that John Wesley ever wrote. It was seven days before his death, and he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce, 
um, as Wilberforce was for some 20 years lobbying uh, for the abolition of the slave trade. And so Wilberforce, um, you know the story, but just to remind you, Wilberforce, um, he would say in his young years, he, he, he got elected to um, parliament at the age of 21, and he said, in honesty, I had no care. I didn't care if anyone knew anything about my politics. I just wanted them to know my name. So Wilberforce said that in his early years, he was just proud. And then he said that um, he, had, he had a born-again experience and had something to do with some Methodists, but he came to really know God in a radical and profound way. And he was very, he, had, he was obviously, he had a public name, and so he was kind of embarrassed, but what he did was he went to the house of John Newton. And John Newton was the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, you remember. And John Newton was a pastor at this point, and John Newton um, actually was a slave trader in his own right before his own salvation experience. And so Wilberforce went to the house of John Newton, and he began to enter into this relationship with John Newton. And eventually, Wilberforce said to John Newton, he says to Newton, I am going to leave Parliament, I'm going to leave politics, I'm going to be a pastor. And Newton says, do not do it. Newton quotes to him that famous Esther text. How do you not know that you were raised up for such an hour as this? Newton says to Wilberforce, none of us can stop the slave trade, you're the only one. Keep knocking on that, bang your head against that wall until you make some progress. And so Wilberforce takes the advice of John Newton, and for some 20 long years, with no avail, he continually presents to Parliament this, he's, this idea that they must end the slave trade. He was doing things like bringing presentations of what was happening in the slave trade. And he would say things like, for whatever you can say from now on, you can never say I, you were ignorant of this. Now you know. Now you know what's actually going on when we're robbing people from their homeland, putting them in inhumane settings and ships, dragging them to the other side of the world and selling them off. Now you know what's actually happening and you cannot pretend that you were ignorant. Some 20 years he keeps saying this. And the last thing that John Wesley wrote, John Wesley wrote to um, Wilberforce and this was his letter. He says, Dear Sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be uh, as a fan, um, to, to be as a Athanius, golly, I can't say that name to save my life, um, against the world, um, which he, he was the one who um, argued against Arian in the, in the Nicene, um, the Council of Nicaea against this idea. Um, Arianism taught that Jesus was, a, was an angel, a lesser God, and he argued that thing down. It's basically what Jehovah's Witness teach today. He says, unless the divine power has raised you up like that, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that villainy which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. He's saying, unless God has raised you up, you will not be successful. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, he says, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. Then he said, but if God, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Then he quotes Galatians 6. Be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. So John Wesley, the last thing he wrote was to William Wilberforce, and he said that if God hasn't raised you up for this, men and devils will wear you out. But I actually believe that God has. And he says, I'm telling you, do not be weary in doing good. Keep pressing forward. And he said, can any of them stand before God? Absolutely not. And then he says, continue until even American slavery is worn down. 
Watts Wesley quote this text from Romans chapter 8 to Wilberforce, claiming that yes, Wilberforce would experience opposition from men and demons alike, which would aim to shoot him down, but neither, none would be able to stand before the Almighty God. And if God was for Wilberforce, according to Wesley, then Wilberforce would emphatically be successful, and the man was. He smacked a demonic beehive like, like maybe hasn't been smacked before or since. Listen to him say to to Wilberforce, go on in the name of God and the power of his might till even American slavery should vanish before it. I'm telling you that in your personal life, you're called to smack some beehives. In your personal life, you are called to oppose the darkness which grieves the heart of God and to shed light to that thing. And as we do that, demonic powers, but the word of powers cannot be successful if God is for us who in the world can be against us I'm telling you that corporately we are called to smack some demonic beehives but if God is for us none can stand against us we exist within his protection his shelter And the last thing I want to say to you is we exist totally and completely submerged within the peace of God. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Why shouldn't we let our hearts be troubled, Jesus? Why shouldn't we let our hearts be afraid? Because He's given us His peace, and His peace will not leave. He will not withdraw that peace. He's given to us, not as the world gives, but He's given to us without no no bars hold. It's yours. He will not withdraw it from you. I've learned that when, when the peace of God doesn't reign in my life, it's because I've walked away from it, not because God has withdrawn it from me. First, the kingdom of God. I've, I've forgotten to allow my eyes to lock the gaze of Jesus. Toward and every time I realize that I am not living in peace, all I have to do is remind myself who my God is. I'm telling you, when you realize that you're not living in peace, remind yourself that God gave His only Son for you. And the Son says, I give you peace, not as the world gives. It's yours. Have it. Live in it. Dwell in it. And when Paul says emphatically, nothing, there is, there is nothing, no, no, no demonic stronghold, no person, no scenario, no moment of pain or suffering, there is nothing that could ever separate you from the perfect love of God. That should produce in you a profound peace. And if we would just just shove that text somewhere in our memorization, and when life seems to be shaky and the boat's rocking, or when sickness knocks on your door, or when your finances don't seem to be lining up, or when you're trying to preach the gospel but you're experiencing opposition, if we would just begin to say to ourselves that if God is for us, who can be against us? He already gave His only Son. All his chips are on the table. He's going to see me through. All of a sudden, we have just released a well of peace, life, and joy in the hearts which Satan himself cannot steal from you. Jesus says, no man will pluck you from my hand.
And again, um, we, we, we don't believe in like equally opposing forces. We don't believe that Satan is God's equal. Like the text is emphatic that, that no, no creation stands before God. And re- just remember that Jesus says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Don't, don't ever allow yourself to submit to the idea that God has to wrestle down Satan. Not so. Satan is in chains. He's bound. He is defeated. He is not God's equal. Not even close. Jesus, I watched him fall from heaven like lightning. Like, like God just plop. I used to love it, old preacher who would say that, uh, um, the scripture, it gives this idea that uh, a third, you know in Revelations where it says the, the, the dragon knocked down a third of the stars. We get this idea that demonic powers are one third of um, the original angelic host. Maybe, maybe not. It, it seems to be a biblical idea. And I love an old preacher who used to say that, that if demons are the one third that fell, that we can automatically assume that they're the stupid ones. So Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 is, is, is beckoning us. Enter into the rest which was bought for us on the cross of Calvary. We, can't, we, we just can't get our minds around the full extent of what happened for us in that moment in, in history. We can't get our minds around the, the full nature of the gospel. But even this week as I'm studying, I'm, 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 I'm wrapping my mind in like, like really contemplating the fact that, that God felt lost. That God had to pin himself back as he watched his only perfect son be chewed up and spit out by sinful and vile men. He had to hold back his anger for us. He endured some form of loss. And then in Romans chapter 8, through the Holy Ghost and through the hand of Paul, he said, there you live as if you're not loved. Don't forget what I did. Don't forget my pent-up wrath as I watched my only son endure the worst death scientists say that history has ever known. So conclusion, Micah, you can go ahead and come. Micah, you're in here. Go ahead and come for me. Number one, remember all that the Father has endured. All His capital is in this investment. All of His chips are on the table. He's given us the jewel, the crown, the prince of heaven. Of course, He's going to see us through. Of course, He's going to be our shepherd. He didn't get us this far to quit on us. So number two, in the conclusion, live bold. Take risk. Rebuke fear. Refuse to submit to it. When it whispers in your ear, and it will, you tell it to sit down. To be quiet, you remind it that God has already given me His only Son. Of course, He's going to see me through. He won't abandon me. I'm not an orphan. I'm just not. So much of the point of Romans chapter 8, that we are not orphans. We have been adopted, grafted in, that Jesus would be the elder brother. Number three, live in peace and joy. It's bought for you. Peace and joy is bought for you. Jesus says, I've given it to you. I will not take it back. Live in it. Steward it. When you feel yourself begin to sink, just lock, lock your gaze into mine. I'll, I'll pull you up. I'll be your strength. I'm willing to be your shelter. And 
And number four, I'm saying that in our coming days, in your personal life, when your family is wrestling with addiction or your kids are walking away from God or whatever is going in your personal life, I'm telling you to smack the junk out of those beehives. Keep smacking those demonic powers. Pray in the Holy Ghost. Pray in the Spirit. Pray Scripture. Confess. Let's believe. Let's smack every demonic beehive that's attempting to put, get its, its, its grimy hands on our families. And as we move forward in our corporate calling to see God set people in this city free from addiction, free from sin, free from bondage, free from oppression, as we realize that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities as we get our spiritual raid out and we start spraying down some little demonic wasp nest, let's walk in boldness. Let's walk in faith. The deposit has been put down. The victory has been won. What more could He possibly do to show you His immense love for you? He has no greater act. There's no possible greater display of sacrificial love than Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Live like it. Live like it. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.